It's my privilege this morning to introduce our guest speaker, and if you've been here, the men who were here yesterday, and you were here this morning in our Bible Fellowship Hour, you got to hear P Peter Gaiman. Uh, we got the correct pronunciation. It's like my name. I have O and E, and it's Gertzen, not Gortzen. And so it's uh, Gaiman, and we're glad to have Dr. Peter Gaiman from Shepherd's Theological Seminary in Cary, North Carolina, to bring the message. Let's greet him and welcome here this morning. Well, it's an honor to be with you all this morning. I hail from northern Minnesota, and I was telling my wife that I was excited to come to Nebraska where it would be cold and snowy, just like Minnesota, and then it was warmer here than it was in North Carolina, so I'm not sure what to think now, uh, but I, I really appreciate being here. I have been teaching at Shepherd's Theological Seminary for seven years, and I teach a lot of the Old Testament and do some of the biblical Hebrew classes. Don't worry, I'll be teaching you a little Hebrew uh, today. Uh, as we go through Psalm 121, uh, so you can start turning there if, if you want. Uh, but one of the things that I also do is at the church there, I, I function as the young adult shepherd, and uh, I, uh, I often teach the young adults as part of the church, and, and I have a, a strong desire to see people uh, trusting the Lord and walking faithfully with Him. And although I do a lot of teaching, uh, on an academic level, and sometimes I use some strange vocabulary as I will introduce you to some new words today, I'm sure, and I'll try to define those for you. Uh, I also have a, a strong desire to help us think pastorally. So in, in one sense, I'm going to wear both hats today. Uh, this is going to be a little different because in, in one sense, it's going to be very much like a sermon that you're used to. But in another sense, too, I, I really want to uh, introduce you to a, a few things that, that I think the Lord would allow me to do uh, with some of my background with the Hebrew language. Uh, because, and just al already out of the gate, I want to, I want to explain something, is, is that our Bibles are the inspired Word of God. We, we love it. We, we can benefit from it in so much detail. And one of the things that... I think is helpful for us sometimes, especially when we go through uh, poetry, like we find in the Psalms, is to recognize that it is a poetic language that is different or in distinction from English. For example, I don't know, do you, some of you have poems memorized in English? I don't know. I always, my mom made me memorize A Little Brother Follows Me as a poem because I had a younger brother. And so she wanted to make sure that was always floating around in my mind. One of the things that marks English poetry is a sound-alike uh, sound relationship at the end of uh, the lines. Roses are red, violets are blue, nobody hates you more than I do. You know, something like that. Uh, is that how it goes? I don't know. I can't actually remember the real uh, version of that. Uh, that's... We understand the English poetic nature to, to go sound like rhyme. But in Hebrew, there, there are different things that happen. And I want to point out some of those aspects to you so that you can help appreciate 
uh, some of the neat things that we see in Psalm 121. It's not going to it's not going to change or revolutionize your world as much as it is, I think, just going to help us appreciate just who God is. And that's kind of what we want to talk about today is when we go through Psalm 121, what I want to really leave you with, the, the thing that I want you to remember more than anything, this is just, we're going to talk about this all day today. This is, this is the main point. If you're note-taking, you can write this down and then put your notebook away. Well, you can just keep it out. But this is the main, this is the main uh, lesson is that God is our guardian. That's what I want to leave you with today. And the implications of that are profound. That God is the one who takes care of us. And I know we know that, but we really need to know that. We need to go to the next level and, and really understand that because it has implications for how we process personal tragedy, how we process suffering, how we process national instability. God is our guardian. And what does that mean? Well, we're going to find out in Psalm 121. Psalm 121 is basically an extended metaphor in, in many ways. And we're used to that. Maybe you've heard of Maybe you've heard of Pilgrim's Progress. Maybe you're familiar with it. You've read it. Uh, the basic, basic premise of Pilgrim's Progress is you have Christian who, a, as an extended allegory, he's, he sets off to the celestial city, and so he's walking along the roadway, and each thing he comes across is a metaphoric experience of life. Uh, he, he, he goes through the narrow gate. He goes through uh, and uh, interacts with with people who are do-gooder and, and worldly-wise, all these individuals that are communicating something about how we interact in life. And that, that's pretty normal for us. Even when we speak in, in our own English language, we use, we use the idea of traveling along a road or a path as a metaphor. You might meet somebody who, who's had a rough road, right? They, they, they've had a rough road. Or you could even think of how Jesus described himself. I am the way, the truth, and the life. The way is the same word for road. I am the road. Jesus, we don't really think about him as the road a lot of times, but that is the point. He's the road or the way, the truth, and life. And so we often conceptualize life as a, as a metaphor of journeying along, right? And Psalm 121 does the same thing. It's a part of a collection which extends for 15 psalms, starting in Psalm 120 all the way through 135. You have the Songs of Ascent. And these psalms are a collection which were meant to be sung or experienced by Israel as they were journeying up to Israel for some of the festivals. And so you would, I mean, I don't know what you do when you're driving uh, the cool thing that I found out about Nebraska is it's like right in the middle of everything. Like it's smack dab in the middle of the United States. And so it, you can drive everywhere. You can get, in fact, somebody was saying that they were driving to Minnesota and it was only, you know, like a day's drive. Basically, it's a long day, but it's a day's drive. And I was, I was thinking, wow, that's crazy. It's, and then you can drive down south, hit Texas, Oklahoma. You can drive east, hit the east coast, drive west. It's in the middle of everything. And as you're driving, so, so I gather, perhaps I'm wrong on this, but I gather Nebraskans drive a lot of places. 
That's what I, my big takeaway from being here. And that's cool. But when you're journeying, what do you do? I think maybe you might listen to some things, maybe read some books, listen to some audio books, whatever. Uh, well, what they would do in, uh, in the old days is they would sing songs as well. And so maybe you do that too, which if you're like my family, we could do that for a little while. Then dad says, all right, time to be quiet. Time to play this silent game, you know, or uh, try to play that game. But as the, as the caravan's going, remember, they're walking everywhere. As the caravan's going, you know, they're going at a slow pace, but they would, they would recite and sing these songs, and this would, this would teach them theological truths as they're ascending up to Jerusalem, as they're going up into the mountains. Now, Jerusalem is situated as such uh, that no matter where you approach Jerusalem from, you have to ascend into the hill country to get to Jerusalem. I've had the privilege of being there a few times, and it's one of my favorite things in the world to go from, uh, from down in the valleys to come up and ascend to Jerusalem, and it's just so beautiful, so exciting to get there. I love it. And that is what the excitement would be for the, for the journeymen as they are traveling to get there. There's the excitement, the anticipation, and so they would sing these songs, and this song in particular uh, fits that journey so well. But it's more than just about that journey. It's about life. It's about how, as we go through life, where is our confidence? And so Yahweh, the Lord, is the guardian of his people at all times, in all places. That's what this psalm is going to teach us. So we, we come to this psalm in verse 1, and the psalmist Begins by saying, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. So this is the traveler's question. And he's setting, he's setting the framework for us. He's, he's essentially uh, giving us kind of a rhetorical question in many ways. He's saying, who will take care of me? Where is my help going to come from? And again, I think this is, this is an area where we, we probably miss a little bit of significance just on the basis of how we travel, you know, whether it be by plane or by bus or by, I was going to say boat, but it doesn't really apply to Nebraska, could, uh, could be car, you know, all this. I do have to say, yesterday at the conference, I just want to clarify something, all right? I made a comment about um, going for a walk in, in the corn. And I, want, I don't want to imply that that's a bad thing. I want to imply that, you know, walking in the corn fields would be excellent. In fact, the city slickers, where I come from, they pay good money to walk in corn mazes. You guys get to do it for free. So I just really want to clarify that I meant no uh, disrespect to Nebraskan corn farms. This is, this is an excellent thing. But normally people would walk places. And there's, there's actually a, a treacherous part of that journey that we fail to appreciate. On the one hand, there would be the normal dangers of, uh, of animals, of uh, not having enough water, of not, ha- not knowing the way, of traveling during the darkness. And of course, if you're, if you're traveling in the mountains, you're going to you know, possibly slip off the cliff and die, you know, fall over the side, you know, all those things are, are regular dangers. But in addition to that, the hill country is where all the, uh, the old fashioned term would be the brigands, the pirates, the, the rogues, they would all hide out. The people who were the outcasts of the society would hide there and ambush 
the unsuspecting travelers, those who didn't have protection. That's the story of the Good Samaritan, by the way. That's, that's essentially on the, on the journey up to Jerusalem, that's where the, the Good Samaritan story happens, where you have the ambush take place, the robber leaves him for dead, and then he's brought to an end, all that. So there's a very real fear if you're ascending up to Jerusalem. You say, okay, I lift my eyes to the hills. I see what's going on. Where's my help going to come from? Who's going to take care of me? And that's, that's a real question that we ask. We go through the difficulties of life. Uh, there, remember, this is going to be an extended metaphor. We're going we're to work through this together. And one of the things that, that the traveler, us, asks is where will I find help in the midst of these obstacles, in the midst of these difficulties? Well, the traveler answers his own question. And he says, my help, my assistance comes from the Lord. Anytime you have that uh, lowercase capital L-O-R-D, uh, it, it's Yahweh's name. It's, it's the Lord Yahweh. We, we translate it as Lord with the special spelling to communicate that it's the name of the Lord. So he's specifically identifying, not just saying, my help comes from an impersonal God or, or anything like that. He's saying, my help specifically comes from the God that I'm acquainted with, Yahweh, the Lord, the one whom I have a relationship with. That's where my help comes from. And who is this Lord that I know, he's the one who made heaven and earth. And again, I think that this is, this is such a helpful foundation because he's recognizing that the Lord is the one who created, and this is, this is an important uh, connection to make, especially in the ancient world, when you create uh, gods, even in the, in the pagan world, if a god created something, he had power over it. So when you say that God creates heaven and earth, you're not just saying it in a deistic way where you would say, oh, God created everything, then turns his back and walks away. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is that God created this and sustains it and takes care of it and is in charge of it. And so there's, there's a confidence there saying, listen, I know my help comes from the Lord. The Lord sends me help. The Lord sends me assistance when I need it. And amen, what, what a privilege that is. And the Lord is powerful enough to do that. He's in, he's in control. He's in charge. He is so unlike us. He created everything. You and I are his creatures. And then the psalm stops, or does it? I mean, it seems like the psalm could stop. That in and of itself could be just an amazing meditation to dwell on, couldn't it? The traveler asks the question, he, he responds as he's thinking through that. And, and the point there is that we are going to go through difficulties. I, I, look at, I look up, I look through the hills, I look through the hills of life, and I see that the Lord is going to send help. Period. But this is one of the neat things about Psalm 121. And you, it's kind of hard to see this right away unless you're looking for it. Uh, but there, there's a change in voice. We could call it uh, a change in voice here in verse 3. And now you start seeing, uh, in, the, in verses 1 and 2, you say, I lift up my eyes. I do it. I'm the traveler. I'm looking. 
I'm doing this, my help comes from you. So there, there's a personal reference there. But now the voice changes in verse 3, and it's, he will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. So there's a, there's a person change here. And what that means, I think, and I think a lot of people would agree with this, but uh, is that another voice has come into this song now. And it's what we call, here's your, you know, you can just forget these fancy words, but I think it's fun to learn new things. This is called an antiphony in music, like an antiphonal song where you have two voices that are singing to one another. Opera is the best example, but I don't really like opera. So it's like one of those things where a lot of times you have voices uh, singing to one another. Uh, and maybe, maybe like Handel's Messiah would be an example, like, hallelujah, hallelujah. You have the antiphonal answers, right? And so that seems to be what's going on in Psalm 121 here, is that you have an additional voice here. And so what some of the Old Testament scholars have proposed, and I think this is a good idea, is that whoever's jumping in here is, is emblematic of the, of the leadership of of Israel. It could be maybe an elder of the tribe. Maybe it's one of the Levites. But there, there's, a, there's an additional voice coming in to sing at this part. So you can imagine if this song was being sung as special music, you know, you have the, you have the soloist come up, the traveler, and he's, he's singing, you know, like, I lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? And then he says, my help comes from the Lord, the one who made heaven and earth. And then all of a sudden you have the pastor or one of the elders come and start singing a different part. And it's not to correct the traveler, but it's to affirm and actually tell him something deeper. That it's not just, and this is so powerful, it's not just that your help comes from Yahweh. It's something deeper than that. And so the explanation goes like this. Verse 3, he will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. And of course, if you're imagining going up into the hills, the idea of letting your foot be moved or the idea is slipping out, well, if you've ever done any kind of hiking or, or twisted your ankle or anything like that, you know that that's not fun. That's not what you want to be doing. And so the, this supporting voice is coming along saying, yes, he will not let your foot be moved. And he says, he who keeps you will not slumber. But then he goes on in verse 4 and says, Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. And if, if you just bypass that right away, if you just read quickly, you say, huh, that's weird. He says that whoever is guarding this individual will not sleep three times. Seems overkill to me. But there's actually, and this is where, you know, we're going to take our our student hats out, and I'm going to explain some things about, about how this works, is that it's not, it's not just, it's not just, re, it's not just restating the exact same thing that he has already said. There, there's a heightened expression here. It's almost as if, well, in English, maybe some of the ways that we do this is, is we, we get louder, we build into crescendo, we start raising our voice, and then we start going louder, you know, just we like that. You all looked up. You were sleeping, but then you were like, what's he doing? Ah! <laughs> but that's how we often emphasize things, right? But in, 
in the Hebrew world, in the Old Testament world which the, in which the Old Testament is written, there were a variety of ways of emphasizing different things. And one of the ways that you would emphasize something is repetition, yes, but even more so, you could state things in, in different ways. So that's what we see here. And you can't see it so much in English, but it's, it's uh, evident in, in Hebrew how there's a different way of, of negating the verbs. So what I mean by that is there's, there's multiple ways to say no in Hebrew. That's what I mean. In English, we got one, no. Or maybe we have other ways to do it, but that's mainly in English we say no. But in Hebrew, there's two different ways to say, well, there's more than two, but two primary ways to say no. And so the first time in verse 3, he says, he who keeps you will not slumber. But in verse 4, he says, he who keeps Israel will and I would translate it as something like, will never slumber or sleep. So there, there's a different word that's used there, and it's a, it's a heightened emphasis. Basically, what he's trying to do is he's trying to say, listen, God's not going to sleep on you. And then he, and then he like slaps you across the face and says, listen to me. He's not going to sleep. Like, he will never sleep, which I like sleeping. And... I have really young kids, so I don't do it as much as I would like to nowadays. But uh, I, uh, a little interesting tidbit about my life in seminary is that I worked as a night shift security guard while I was going through seminary. So I'd go to class during the day, go uh, to uh, work at night and work through that. And I'm going to tell you something that will give you... Well, I don't know if I should tell you this because I don't want you sleeping while I'm teaching, but I need to tell you this, is that prior to that experience, I had a conviction that if somebody was sleeping on Sunday, they were the worst of sinners. Like if while I'm preaching, like if I saw you doing this, I would think to myself, they might not even be a Christian. That's what I would think to myself. I'm like, they're probably not saved. You know, they're, they're sleeping while the preaching of God's word is going on. And then the Lord had me work Saturday overnight uh, into Sunday morning. And I'd show up at church, I'd be like this, and I'd be like, ah, oh, the preaching of God's word is so good. So I'm like, oh, Lord, I'm saved, help me. Uh, and then I realized that perhaps my standard of righteousness was not the Lord's standard of righteousness and all that, but it really taught me a deep lesson on the need for sleep and why we should all go to bed at 8 o'clock on Saturday night instead of, uh, you know, late at night. All that to say that when, when you look at this, and when I'm, when I'm thinking through this, I understand the need of sleep. And there are so many times where, you know, you have to push yourself and so you don't get the sleep you need. And you're just exhausted. Your, your temper is short. Uh, the lack of sleep just, just corrupts you as, as a human being. And, and you need to sleep. And then by the time you finally fall asleep, let's just go ahead and say that you are an easy assassination target. Right? I mean, it, somebody could come in with a herd of elephants and assassinate you. There's just you're out, right? And sleep is a time of vulnerability. It absolutely is. We need to be recharged. We need to recuperate. And it makes us incredibly vulnerable. But that's not true of God. You know, when we think of a theology of sleep, I don't know if you ever thought of that, but why do we need sleep? Why didn't God just create us to not need sleep? But each time you go to sleep, you are, in essence, declaring your non-godness. The fact that you are not like God, and you need to recover, and you need the sleep, and you're opening yourself up to just incredible vulnerability. 
and yet it is complete opposite with God. God doesn't need to recuperate. There's, there's not a, uh, in other words, God doesn't say, oh man, I really need to refresh myself. Like, I'm just tired. Sorry, like I would love to help, your, help you out, but I just need some me time. I got to recuperate. You know, I, 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 already, I already booked a, a weekend vacation. I need this. No, God never does that. And, and I love that. Because he, he's emphasizing the fact here that, and, and bringing it back to what we were talking about in verses 1 and 2, is the traveler says, you know, my help's going to come from Yahweh. And that's true, absolutely true. But it's more than that. It, it's that you need to understand who the Lord is. Who is this God that helps you? He doesn't take time off. It's not as if, it's not as if you need to fear, and this is one of the greatest comforts in really all of scripture, if you understand it, just with regard to, it doesn't matter uh, where you are or when you are living, God's not taking time off. He's not checking out. You could be, you know, in the hottest war zone overseas. You could be in the middle of a cornfield in Nebraska. You know, the Lord is going to take care of you. This is, this is, this is his promise. He doesn't sleep is that he has promised that he will be there, that he will be there. And, and I love how, how he even includes the, the, heightening, the heightened aspect in verse 4. He says, the one who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. And, and the reason that's so helpful is because it's a bit of a, a greater to a lesser argument who is more powerful, the one who can take care of one individual or the one who can take care of an entire nation? Obviously, you know, God is the one who can take care of, in other words, it's, it's when, when, when we are, when we, when we invite a new believer into the fold, we don't give them a number saying, and then when one of us dies, the Lord will watch you too. It's like, no, we say, no, the Lord is capable of taking care of you too. The Lord is strong enough. He keeps all of his people. And he will never slumber. He will never sleep. He, he doesn't snooze. He doesn't, he doesn't uh, need an afternoon siesta. He doesn't, he, he doesn't need that recuperation. Now, in the next verse, he exemplifies this even more. And, and one of the neat things about this psalm is that up to this point, We've had, we've, had a, we've had some theologically accurate and astute observations being made. But this just brings it to the whole new level. Because on the one hand, the traveler has said, you know, I know that the Lord is with me and he will send help. Like, he, he's promised to send assistance. I get that. He's going to do that. And in verses 3 and 4, this secondary voice, the elder, has come along and said, you know what? You need to understand exactly who this is that's guarding you, that's guiding you, that's helping you. This is, this is who it is. And, but verse 5 is, is when he is actually identified. Notice in verses 3 and 4, there's no mention to, of the Lord. There's no, no mention of, of his name. It just says, he will not let your uh, foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. He who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. And then in verse five, it's as if it's a grand 
you know, a grand reveal. It's as if now it's, it's put at the very beginning. It's almost as if the elder grabs the traveler by the, by the shoulders, looks him in the eyes, and says, Yahweh doesn't just send help. He is your help. He himself is your keeper. And, and the difference is obvious. If, if you think about... Um, if you think about how we interact with human beings, sometimes we'll say, hey, I need help. You, you reach out to somebody, say, I, I need assistance. You get a ding on your phone. Oh, they've Venmoed me, you know, 20 bucks, whatever, to help me. So they have sent me some help, some assistance. But it's entirely different if that individual comes and shows up and says, I'm here, like I'm your help, right? And here... It's very clear. The Lord is, the, is your keeper. He's the one who's, in, in the words of the psalmist, the shade at your right hand. Now, that, that's a beautiful picture and one that we really need to meditate on. Because on the one hand, and I'm happy to report that this is, this is an area where I think Nebraska really does have, you know, just such a great parallel here, is that it gets hot in Nebraska. Right? I think that's what I remember reading. I mean, right now is good, but as I was researching, I was like, yeah, it does get hot here in Nebraska. And uh, I think that that's uh, similar to Israel. It gets hot in Israel, right? So one of the things that is helpful in the heat is some sort of protection, shade, right? Uh, The thing about North Carolina, which I'm not super thrilled about, is that, you know, you stand in the shade and you're, you're like, it's as hot in the shade as it is in outside, and that's because of all the humidity that exists in North Carolina. But the shade is synonymous throughout the world, really, of being protection from the sun. The sun destroys things. It, uh, you know, uh, I can't tell, uh, in Minnesota, I used to paint houses, and, you know, you'd go through it, it just because the sun would be shining on the house, you'd have to paint, paint the house to... Uh, repair all those elements. And that's just part of the, the power of the sun. There, there's, yes, we benefit from it, absolutely, but it's also emblematic of destruction in many ways. And so shade is this, is this idea of protection. In fact, maybe some of your translations might even just translate that word as the Lord is your protection at your right hand. And that's the idea, is that Yahweh isn't just standing off saying, okay, yeah, well, I'll, I'll get you some stuff over there. I'll, I'll send you some different uh, items or whatever. But no, Yahweh himself, the Lord, is our protection. And he's not standing far off. He's not saying, you know, I'm just going to stay in heaven. Uh, I, I need to keep my distance from you. What does it say? It says, at your right hand. Now, this is actually kind of unique. And it's possible that this is mentioned somewhere. I can't, I'll let me say it this way. I cannot think of another place in the Bible where, where this phrase is used of Yahweh being at our right hand. Part of the reason that's significant is because, well, we often refer to a subservient helper or maybe somebody who's our assistant as our right-hand man or something like that, Right? Is God our right-hand man? That seems, that seems almost heretical to say that, that God is at our right hand ready to serve us. And I think it's intentionally so. 
Now, I'm not denying the fact that God is so far above us or that he is the one who is worthy of being worshipped and all of that. But the text says what the text says. And it's saying the Lord is at our right hand. And that communicates his willingness to serve, his willingness to be available, to be ready for us. I think that's marvelous. That's, that's beautiful. The Lord is the shade at your right hand. He, we don't serve a deistic God who is, you know, maybe we'll get a glimpse of him here or there, uh, you know, no, this is a God who is, who is very interested in us personally, in helping us personally. Now, he goes on because he really wants to lay it on here. He really wants to emphasize the fact that we have protection uh, in this great and awesome God. And so in verse 6, he says, The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. Now, here is your seminary test. I see some of you taking notes, all right? So I'm going to give you a word here, and I will, I will ask you about this in the future. But this is, your, this is your word for the day, okay? Merism, all right? M-E-R-I-S-M, merism. All right, what a merism is, is when you refer to two things that are basically on either side of the spectrum, and it's meant to communicate everything in between. The most famous one would be heaven and earth, like uh, the Lord, the creator of heaven and earth. We already saw one, but heaven and earth, uh, it's not, it's meant to say heaven and earth and everything else that is included with, within that, basically. And so here, if you think of sun and, sun and moon, those are merisms. So to put it this way, what do you have if you don't have the sun out or the moon out? You have trouble, you're dead. You know, it's like this is, you need the sun or the moon to, to have life, essentially. And some of you are going to be smart Alex on me, and you're going to be like, well, just wait a second now. There is a possibility that you could have, no. The point is, it's either nighttime or it's daytime. That's the point. And so the, if, you, if you understand that appropriately, then what he's saying is that at any time, at any time, whether the sun is out or whether the moon is out, Yahweh's protecting you. So he doesn't sleep. We saw that earlier. He doesn't sleep. He doesn't take time off. And there's no time during the day where you're outside of his protection. And there's no time during the night where he's not able to keep you. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon strike you by night. And I think this is, this is so helpful as, as, we, as we think through, as we think through this. I, I know... Uh, you know, I, I guess I'll, I'll think of my, my kids because I certainly would never be scared of the dark. But my kids, uh, I was actually really scared of the dark when I was growing up, just so you know. Uh, I don't know if, uh, I'm assuming Nebraskans probably have basements, is that correct? Basements, yeah. So you've heard of the basement monsters. Yes, they exist. So uh, especially if your laundry room is down in the basement, uh, that is strange noises. It's scary. Am I right? Where are the children to back me up on this? It's correct, right? I mean, it's scary down there. And so there would be, a, you know, you'd be playing downstairs and you'd be like, okay, time to go upstairs and I need to turn off the lights. So you'd be like, on your mark, get set, 
Okay, light, and then you run up the stairs. And all of it felt like they were just about to get you before then you got out. So, uh, so there, there is an element where, you know, I, I sense this even in my own life. Now, I don't do it as often as an adult, but I still, you know, suffer sometimes from, from this, these delusions of, oh, maybe, maybe, I, maybe I, I, I'm in a precarious situation here. And, but the point that the psalmist is making is that you actually don't have to worry about that with the Lord. There, there's never, there's never a, a place that he can't go. There's never a time when he's not in complete control where he's, he's able to protect you. And so in verse 7, he points that out. He says, the Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. And when we, when we look at this principle, when, when, we're, when we're studying this, the temptation might be, this would be incorrect, to say that means nothing bad will ever happen to you. All right, how many of you had something bad ever happen to you? Yeah, right? Yeah, those of you who didn't raise your hands are just liars, okay? So everybody has had something bad happen to them. So what does it mean he will keep you from all evil? It's not saying that it's not a prohibition against all, anything bad or anything evil ever happening to you. What he's saying is that there's nothing evil that happens outside of God's control. So to put it this way, as believers, we will suffer just like everybody else. There will be things that happen, devastating things. Some of you have suffered many ways. Uh, some of you have gone through tremendous heartache. Some of you have uh, gone through uh, tremendous loss. And that's hard. But what helps is coming to the, to the firm conviction, which is found all over Scripture, but even here in Psalm 121, where there is not any aspect of that suffering or that evil or that calamity. And by the way, I need to say the word for evil in Hebrew is broader than just wickedness or evil. It can, it can refer to calamity as well. So it's uh, whether it be some sort of natural disaster, whether it be suffering, whether it be true wickedness or evil, none of that happens outside of God's control. See, God, God doesn't limit himself saying, oh man, I wish I, wish I could protect you, but Satan is really strong today. No. Or God doesn't say, oh, I wish I, I, wish I could help you out, but, but man, I just, I just can't, I don't, I don't interact in the, in the farming world. Those, those, the things that happen on the farm, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't have control over those. No, of course not. The Lord is in control of all things, and all evil is within his guardianship. And so it's important to keep that in mind, that he is the one who's guarding us. And it's not a health, wealth, and prosperity statement. It's just saying he's in control of all that. He does keep us. He does love us. He does guide us and guard us. And that's one of the most, it's, it's a difficult thing. Absolutely, it's a difficult thing to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. But the rest of that psalm also helps us. I will fear no evil, even though I'm walking. I'm already walking through this, but I won't fear it because you are with me. Right? Psalm 23. That, that is what is guiding the psalmist. That's what we see here is that we understand we, we, we can experience evil, but no evil is outside of God's control. 
and he will keep your life. And I, I love how he, he kind of summarizes that at the end of verse 7 there, just saying there's a, there's a simplicity to this, is your very existence, Yahweh guards that. Who you are, he, he, he cares about that. And then we get to verse 8, which is really, in many ways, the summary but culmination of the psalm. And he says, the Lord, and, and by the way, I should, I should go back and say that the observation of these last two verses is just the explicit statement that it's Yahweh, the Lord, who's doing this. So he, he's repeatedly invoking the name of the Lord saying, it's this one that we've been talking about. The Lord does this. The Lord does this. It's not your, uh, your faith in, in the president of the United States. It's not your faith in some uh, Republican governor. It's not your faith in even family, it's the Lord who will keep you from evil. He will keep your life. And, verse 8, the Lord will keep your going out and your coming in. All right, going out, coming in, what is that? A merism, I heard mutterings. We need to be better. You will fail the final exam if this uh, keeps up. No. Uh, merism, yes, it's, it's to say the going out, and the coming in. And it's, it's meant to communicate the entirety of all possible action. So if you're, if you're leaving the house to do something, if you're coming in from doing something, it means that you've done something. And so the whole point is that no matter what you do, he will keep you. And that's so comforting because, you know, we, we've talked a lot about who the Lord is and how he doesn't sleep and so he doesn't take time off. But then we've also talked about how there's never a day or night Yahweh is guarding us. He's keeping us absolutely 100%. And now we zero in on the things that we do. You know, whether you're working on a farm, whether you're working in IT, whether you're teaching in a school, whether you're uh, a doctor, no matter what you do, there's no profession outside of which Yahweh says, sorry, I don't really have a lot of control there where I can't, I can't really guard you in that profession. Maybe you're in the military or maybe, you, you know, you do whatever. You fill in the blank and you say, Yahweh has it covered. He's got it all. You don't have to fear. You don't have to think to yourself. And this is why Christians always have had such a powerful testimony to the watching world where even some of the, some of the greatest examples are on the battlefield where you have a Christian uh, who, who doesn't fear death. Because they know I'm as safe here on the battlefield as I am sleeping on my bed in home. If the Lord wants me to go home, it doesn't matter where I am. He'll take me home. And in the same sense, if the Lord wants to protect me in the midst of a hail of bullets, he'll protect me. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in. And will there ever be an end to that? No. From this time forth, as you currently exist forevermore, there will never be an exception to that. See, the Lord is our guardian, our, our amazing, benevolent, magnificent guardian. But I do want to add a, a word of caution here. Because 
what I've been talking about here is absolutely true. It is promised to you if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ. But I would also say that if you have not put your faith in Jesus Christ, if you have been hesitant to that, you've not committed to him, if you've not submitted, bowed the knee to him and, and said, Lord, I, I want to live for you, I want to serve you, uh, help me to do that. If you have not done that, if you're interested in living your own life, then this is not the God who has a relationship with you. The relationship that God has with you is of righteous judge who will enact sinful consequences from you in an eternity in hell. And so it's, it's very important that as Christians, we can take great comfort on the fact that our God is powerful and righteous and good and loving, but that same God cannot abide sin. And so those of us who have not put our faith in Christ, who have not bowed the knee to his kingship, declaring our allegiance to him, this is, this is not for you. And so I would just really adjure you, and even as we think about our friends and our family members who uh, have not put their faith in Jesus Christ, let this be a motivation even to, to share with them the good news of the, of the true guardian of the galaxy, if you will. Movie pun. It's, this, is the, this is an amazing God. And we, we love and rejoice in this relationship which he has unilaterally given to us. We didn't deserve this at all. And yet it's showing him to be the loving, kind, compassionate God which he declares himself to be. And so I would just beg you, if you haven't put your faith in Christ, to make it so, so that this God, who is promised to take care of those who are his people, would be your caretaker as well. And if you have, let me just encourage you, it doesn't matter what you're going through. He loves you. He cares for you. And he is the shade at your right hand. Let's pray. Lord, this is so comforting. And what a great psalm it is to, to recognize your greatness, your love for us. You are the creator God. And yet, you've stooped to have such a relationship with us. And so, Lord, I pray that you would excite our hearts, that you would encourage us, and most importantly, Lord, that we would give you the due worship, honor and glory that is due your name because of who you are and because of what you do. Lord, guide us the rest of the day. Make that be the case. In your name we pray. Amen.